This week's episode contains super stereo recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Hey there, and welcome back to the Sounds Curious Podcast. The podcast for you, our adventurous listeners. And listeners, we are so, so very happy to be back here in 2019. Happy New Year. And as this is the time of year where we both imagine a better future than the one we have symbolically left behind, but in which uh, it's also sometimes really fun to uh, take a look back. And so today, we're doing a different kind of um, time travel. We're going back to a good chunk of time ago now, and looking at how, musically at least, they pictured the future. And it was a pretty hot future, or cool, depending on how you want to look at it. In a kind of nostalgic moment, because at this particular holiday time of year that we've just all survived, there is an awful lot of holiday music sometimes stuck on repeat whenever we go out into commercial spaces over the last month of the year. So, as a initially as a kind of revolt of my own, I decided this was a time of year for some very quirky music. And it was music that I was first introduced to when I worked at the music library at the University of California. There were times when we had almost... Uh, endless hours to listen to music while we were completing other library tasks and I discovered this moment of well retro futurism in music way back then and ever since it's become the soundtrack to my holiday season but also sometimes a really fun way to explain musical choices like orchestration and arranging which are kind of difficult concepts to explain, uh, particularly at the introductory level. So business first, 
our new project, The Willow's Nest, which is a hybrid home studio, atelier, public workshop, concert venue, installation, and performance space, is about to add a new program, which I'm very much excited about. It's a system or a series, I suppose is a better way to put it, of customized residencies for international artists. So if you are an artist who works in any kind of contemporary performance or even visual art, conceptual art, installation art, obviously sound art, field recording artists, composers, musicians, people working in electronic music and with interactive and immersive technologies, should consider coming and doing a short stay here at the Willow's Nest. Not only will you be in the city of incredible arts and culture and in a neighborhood that is well known both historically and now, of course, uh, as being a center for artists in Berlin, it's also really um, a very global city and one in which Artists from all countries, all cultures, um, find audiences that are very engaged. So if you're interested in working here at the Willow's Nest, it's a bit different from other artist residencies in Europe. Most of them are quite long. Um, the other international residencies here are generally three to six months. Um, as a result, people who work or people who our academics can't always get that time off so for those of you who need to work your production around a short period of time you might want to consider coming to the nest not only would you get an opportunity to teach and present workshops you can also present your new work at the end of the residency and as a complete production facility you'll get excellent documentation along the way. So I'm really excited about the Willow's Nest Residency Program. We'll be releasing more information in early 2019. Um, but since we're here on January 3rd already is the day that I'm recording this, I wanted to give it a quick shout out so that you can go to the willowsnest.org page and see the announcement when it arises. We very much hope to welcome you here at the Nest, sort of like um, Airbnb meets recording studio in a concert venue. So it's kind of one-stop shopping for the busy modern artist.
So when I had to teach orchestration, obviously I would use lots of examples from orchestral music that is considered classical, but I would also choose examples from all over the world and from sources that people really didn't expect. And that was one of the most delicious things about introducing my students to these concepts was being able to wrap them in some great music. Now, the music that we're going to be looking at today occurred in this very tiny little slice of history between about the mid-1950s and the late 1960s. That was a really interesting time in America and the rest of the world. Particularly in post-war America, though, it represented a, a very optimistic time, particularly about the idea of space travel. Now, later on, all of that got caught up in a lot of other political things. But right after the Second World War, in the booming post-war economy, particularly in and around Los Angeles and Hollywood, a lot of composers and arrangers some of whom had classically trained backgrounds, we'll talk about them, some of whom were completely self-taught, they really defined the music of film and television and represent a very interesting musical moment in history. So way back at the very opening of this episode, we heard a track called On the Dark Side of the Moon. That's right. It's not that dark side of the moon, though. No, this was a piece by Frank Comstock, an American composer, arranger, conductor, and trombonist who had an awful lot to do with the sound of American television in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, he actually began composing for Rocky and his friends from 1959 to 1964. The album that On the Dark Side of the Moon comes from is an album called Project Comstock, Music from Outer Space. And if you think that's what you're listening to underneath us right now, well, <laughs> that's something else entirely. But this particular album, Music from Outer Space, was released in 1962. That's relatively late in this period of time, and this is a relatively space-oriented offering in the retrofuturism movement. And it happened right at the middle of this particular musico-historical moment, this cultural moment of optimism before the Cold War chill really set in. And this particular composer who began as an, again, a composer and arranger and an orchestrator released this album in 1962 with tracks called things like Out of This World, but with a number of jazz standards mixed in, things like Stella by Starlight. So this very early connection between retrofuturism, jazz, and the orchestra all seem to have their roots as well in that post-war optimism that was going on in the West. I chose that particular one because I really like it, and it was a nice one to introduce the entire topic. But since we're really digging into orchestration, let's talk about the second track that I played. That is actually from a classically trained duo called Ferrant and Teiche, they were trained at Juilliard and were composers and arrangers who worked together on a number of projects. This particular recording is called Sound Blast. It was released in 1956. And that particular track is a wonderful 
example of an additional and very powerful influence on this retrofuturistic moment in music. In addition to jazz and the idea of the orchestra and certainly instrumental tracks so far, there is also this idea of Latin jazz and the influence of Afro-Brazilian cultures within this movement as well. And there's no better example of that perhaps than one of the best known and founding members of this particular movement, the Mexican composer, arranger, band leader, and instrumentalist, Esquivel. Let's listen to a little bit of that before we talk about Esquivel, because I certainly want to give Esquivel his due. Juan Garcia Esquivel was an arranger, a composer, a pianist, and a band leader. Um, He was born in Tampico, Mexico in 1918, and he died uh, back in 2002. Now, again, one of the founders of this sort of retro futurism in pop music, he very much embodies many of the main preoccupations of this musical genre. I would say first and foremost, as a largely self-taught musician, he was an experimenter, very much a, a curious and 
Well, in many ways, what we would call a prodigy. He was playing by the time he was quite young um, in Mexico City. He hung around a radio station until they let him play. And he improvised on the piano. Another shout out for improvisers out there. But he was most known for assembling an orchestra for this radio station and just sort of adding to it from instruments that are traditionally associated with jazz and classical orchestras, but with a whole host of other instruments. He very much thought of himself as a painter. In fact, the Independent in their obituary published on January 21st, 2002, and written by a Pierre Perron. He actually quotes Esquivel, who talks about his work and his orchestration very much as painterly, that he imagined the music as colors, and that he was very influenced by the visual art of Van Gogh and others in their use of color. So we often refer to color, tone color, also known as timbre. But then often in music, we use the same exact word, color, to refer to the sounds of an orchestra in total. Now by orchestra, I'm not necessarily talking about a classical orchestra here. I'm talking about a collection of instruments for whom a piece of music is arranged. And that's where we get the title of arranger from. They arrange for a particular orchestra. Now, Esquivel gives us a great opportunity to think about color in the orchestra, particularly because that was something he was very well known for, this experimental use of sounds from the wordless vocals that you heard so obviously there, which were often called out as being absolutely stereotypical of his music in general, which is very much not true, as a revival and inclusion in many soundtracks and a long career recording for Universal in Los Angeles will certainly attest. In 1994, there was a CD compilation released called Space Age Bachelor Pad Music, and that certainly marked a revival in interest in Esquivel, and once again, his, I would say, quirky orchestrations were back in the center of musical taste. Now... This gives us an opportunity to examine some of the rhetoric around this particular moment in music because if we consider for a moment its most commonly seen progeny, um, Muzak is most notably associated as having its origins in instrumental, wordless instrumental music of this era. That really does a disservice to some of this music, not only in terms of its originality and its sophistication and complexity, but I think it also hides some of the rhetoric in music that is used to discourage music that is not Western and classical in origin. And that has certainly been leveled at jazz musicians in their criticism throughout the ages, as well as other musicians from Latin jazz and musical traditions outside the West. Even John Coltrane was um, critiqued as having lost his mind after his collaborations with Don Cherry, lest we forget. And it was really from that moment that Coltrane emerged as one of the most sophisticated jazz musicians of the time. So when we think about Esquivel, it's very good to acknowledge on the one hand that his origins were not in Europe or in Euro-centered music. 
but that his influence cannot be understated, particularly when it comes to music for media and film. And that's not just the revival in films like The Big Lebowski. That really has to do with how he influenced other film and television composers through the ages and how his unique approach to sound and timbre, sound color and music, the orchestra as a kind of palette when creating his very rich and textured pieces. Now, part of the reason that I chose the last track by Esquivel and points to you already if you spotted it or (laughs) heard it. Yes, I chose the same track by Esquivel as I played by Ferrant and Taika. It was very specifically chosen as the same track. And of course, that illustrates the theme of today's episode, how orchestration how use of different instruments, different sound colors can absolutely give the same piece a completely different sound. So since this is a podcast and not radio, go back and listen to the second track on this episode and then listen to that last track again. Now, the orchestration couldn't possibly be more different. Certainly, Esquivel is known for those wordless vocals, the zhuzhuzhuing. But wordless vocals, obviously something that's much better known in jazz, but these are not the wordless vocals of Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald. This is not scatting. This is the pure use of syllables and sound as a kind of palette, as a kind of tone color, and as a result because... He's really using nonsense syllables. It folds in perfectly with this space age retrofuturism by sounding almost like an alien language or something like that. He often noted in interviews later in his life that they had no synthesizers. If he wanted a sound, some kind of a color, or if he wanted to change the sound of an instrument, He often went to extreme lengths to do that. He would note that they would let him put heavy curtains behind the brass section to change the sound, or he would want to record his string section on a bright wooden floor to really capture the echo, and they would let him do that. In the end, he would even go to such lengths as to have two separate orchestras in two separate spaces across town, recording at the same time while he mixed live in the booth. That is a musician who is incredibly concerned with stereo separation, in that case, completely geographic, as well as conceptual in recorded space, as well as someone who wanted to go out into the world and create the kind of sound colors and tone colors in his orchestra that he heard in his imagination. That said, it's very difficult not to think of a Western composer like, say, Edgar Varese, whose orchestral music in the early part of his compositional career He often referred to as sort of the precursors of his electronic music later in his career. Back in the middle of the last century, getting access to electronic music equipment, like an electronic music studio, like the one in Cologne in Germany or in Paris, that was very, very difficult. Um, Many of us, including myself, went to graduate school to have access to these spaces. Uh, That's how I got to work at Columbia University in that electronic music studio. So many of us really didn't have access without these institutions and Esquivel not having access to a synthesizer is very reminiscent of Edgar Varese's 
comments about his own early life and the ways in which he too used the orchestra as a way to create sound color and he would also describe his music very visually not referring to uh, painters but really more referring to geography shapes of sound that collided with one another in some ways prefiguring what our waveforms look like in digital audio so Esquivel and Edgar Varese have a bit in common in how they use instruments and orchestras and in particular their orchestration how they employed instruments and what instruments they used as a way of creating new sound colors in music and in many ways the rhetoric around Esquivel really does him a disservice in that regard in fact it's often in the rhetoric around Esquivel used to point out his difference there is a write-up on the composer over at spaceagepop.com um, they have a biography of Juan Garcia Esquivel there and they quote a review published in High Fidelity magazine and written by an R.D. Darrell Darrell perhaps I'm not quite sure how it is pronounced um, which says and I quote here odd sound fancier that I am I have to draw the line somewhere and for me Esquivel oversteps it in his complete disregard for musical taste and tonal attractiveness oh he's outraged I continue, there is plenty of sonic sensationalism here, both in the frantically fancy arrangements and the spectacularly stereoistic recording. But almost without exception, the crude effects cancel each other out. The sounds emanating from an electronic organ and a juju-ing chorus, the nauseous glissandos on various instruments, and the squalling brasses are, for the most part, intolerable. There is at least some gusto in La Bamba, but for the rest, I'll take honest rock and roll any day. End quote. Well, the writer over at the biography on Space Age Music Maker, um, the spaceagepop.com website, is uh, just as appreciative of that interview as I am. Um, in that I think it is uh, that it really misses the mark and it really misses a lot of the sophistication because the tone colors are to that particular critic's ears not something that they appreciate but the idea of new sounds in music was one that had already gripped the 20th century for decades by that point and it was allowed in classical composers freely although there was a bit of public outrage um, if you ever want to think about how important classical music can be sometimes remember that Stravinsky caused riots I can't imagine anyone rioting over contemporary music or at least contemporary classical music now. But it's a nice thought. This rhetoric, I think, really was echoed in the way this music was dismissed as exotica because of its Latin tempos and its unusual instruments and orchestrations and some of its uniqueness. But again, I think that that is a very filtered opinion through a kind of idea of what orchestras are supposed to sound like and that was an idea that was completely open for interpretation in the middle of the 20th century so Esquivel really didn't receive his critical due but to say again that his influence was not felt widely and around the world continuing to this day would be an understatement there is just too much evidence to the contrary 
And again, lest we forget, many of the great pioneers of music are often met with a lot of critical resistance, particularly if they don't emerge from the mainstream. Okay, so from Esquivel to a very different place indeed, that last track was from George Russell and his orchestra. Um, It was from an album called Jazz in the Space Age. It was released in 1960 with some incredible players and soloists, including Bill Evans, um, someone that West Coast jazz fans will, a name that will find very familiar. I bring up George Russell here, and particularly this album, even though George Russell represents a complete episode on his own, and he will get that very soon. As a fellow theorist, as an incredible musician, composer, um, orchestra leader, 
George Russell had an indelible influence on some of my favorite albums. He really changed jazz in the 1950s and 1960s. And so George will get his due in the future. I bring him in here because this album is smack in the middle of this period of time in which jazz and Latin rhythms and various forms of world music got folded into this futuristic optimism that resulted in what some people call lounge music, what some people call space age music, what some people call film music and television music for a few decades. It certainly has its grip in all of those areas. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, it has its origins in this very optimistic moment at the end of the Second World War, before the Cold War set in, and really at a moment when, at least in America and in Europe, people were looking forward with a lot of enthusiasm toward an imagined future. And so while this podcast is both a celebration of this music and a suggestion that it's a great thing to listen to during the holidays and during winter because it's incredibly bright and upbeat and fun to dance around in your kitchen while you're cooking or greeting family and friends during the long dark nights. At least I'm getting used to those in Berlin and up high here in the northern hemisphere where Winter nights are incredibly long, but I digress. George Russell and Jazz in the Space Age gives me a minute to reflect on Afrofuturism and other kinds of futurism that are embedded in this musical movement. Now, we often think of retrofuturism as things from the past that predict a technological or fantastical future. But I think retrofuturism for some populations in the culture is not such a nice place to be. Not every culture likes to imagine things the way they were in the 1950s or even earlier because things weren't so great if you were a member of a population that experienced a ton of discrimination in everyday life. So futurisms, Afrofuturisms, Latin futurisms, indigenous futurisms, all sorts of global futurisms were not necessarily idealizing the past, but they were imagining a better future. And this is a wonderful time of year to reflect on how beautiful those imaginings can be. So George Russell in this album, an incredible musician imagining a future, really um, imagining our culture in this space age and jazz's place in it. That particular track is part two of Chromatic Universe, an incredibly long piece that occupies several parts on the album. I think it's the opening track, the end of the first side, and the close of the album on the second side. So it's a significant composition from a world-class orchestrator and theorist, music theorist, who really changed a lot of the music around him through his theories of Lydian chromatic harmony and Harmony based on modality rather than tonality, which is a whole other discussion in itself. But when we get to the George Russell episode, you bet we'll be talking about that. Now, if I'm talking about Afrofuturisms at this time, of course I have to talk about Sun Ra, and of course I have to do that in his own episode, or at least an episode about that particular moment in free jazz because that's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart but George Russell brings in a very important link between these global futurist movements in music at the time between jazz and the jazz orchestra as well as a kind of special place that west coast jazz in particular musicians like Bill Evans who is on this album had a very powerful influence 
on television and film music at the time, which is part of the reason why it found its way into so many households, even when people had never heard the names of these composers or their musicians or orchestras. It's because the presence of these musicians physically in Los Angeles meant that many of the composers and performers important to these movements were readily accessed by film companies and television companies. Esquivel himself recorded for Universal. It means that this music had a very powerful impact on the media of the time. And I think there's no better example to close out this episode since it's already gotten long and there's so much more that I want to cover in future episodes, so we'll leave that for then. But I want to end with a piece by Dave Pike, another composer, musician, and in this case, vibraphonist and marimbaist, <laughs> percussionist, um, who was very active in writing for film and television and who released an album called Jazz for the Jet Set, which is a really, really great name, in 1966, so relatively late in this movement. And this one very, very well sums up the relationship between West Coast jazz, television and film music, Latin music and percussion, because Dave Pike is well known for Brazilian and Latin jazz, as well as the incredible impact and um, long-standing influence this music has had on film and television. Now, I will leave links in the show notes to all of the albums that I have drawn from today for this little orchestral tour and look at some of the rhetoric around futurisms in music at a particularly futuristic time but there's so much more to explore and some of this music is being re-released i think we may be poised for another comeback so chase it down as you can on whatever format you listen to music and be sure to share it with your friends and family who might need a respite in next year's holidays or whenever holidays are coming up for you, those who listen to this in the future, well, they might really thank you for it because another year of rocking around the Christmas tree might send some people over the edge. But Esquivel's Jingle Bells, well, that might soothe the tired soul. Well, at least once, maybe not on endless repeat. Anyway, we hope that wherever you are and whenever you are listening, you're having a great year and we'll catch you next time.